Well, welcome to Strike Deck Radio. This podcast is brought to you by Medallia. Medallia's customer success automation platform helps CSMs effectively manage their customer relationships. This podcast is also brought to you by the Success League, a consulting and training firm focused on developing customer success programs that drive revenue. Before we get started on this very special 100th episode, I'm excited to announce that we're rebranding this podcast. So going forward, the podcast formerly known as Strike Deck Radio will be called Transforming Experiences in Customer Success. And this new brand really represents what we see as the focus on customer success, creating transformative experiences for our customers. So please keep an eye out for our new name, and our purple logo on your favorite podcast app, but know that we plan to continue to deliver the same great interviews that we always have. My name is Kristen Hare, and I'm the host of the podcast and the founder and CEO of the Success League. And today is our 100th episode. So some of you are watching us live and some of you are listening to this podcast. Either way, thank you so much for your part in helping us hit this major milestone. Today, I'm joined by two guests, Shrisha Ramdas, who is the CEO and GM of Medallia Strike Deck, and Sanjay Poonin, who is the former COO of VMware. And we're going to be talking about executive alignment and how that drives a customer-centric organization. Sanjay and Shrisha, welcome to the podcast and to our 100th episode. Thanks, Kristen. Great to have Sanjay as well. So first, Shrisha, this has been a big journey together. Um, Can you tell us about your path with Strike Deck and what went on behind the scenes over the past four years and 100 episodes of this podcast? Yeah, Christine, you know, the way I got into customer success was I was part of the board meetings and I saw the folk being on new logo acquisition quarter after quarter. Okay. And I felt customer success power was not missed and there was a need to institutionalize the whole customer centricity focus and as well as systemize the process of engagement and prioritization. That's why I got into it. And um, I still recall, you know, when we met for the first time and we discussed about doing like deck radio, there were very few customer success podcasts at that time, right? Most none were focusing on customer success community exclusively. Mm -hmm. And so it's been fascinating journey um, to reach this milestone. And I'm really happy that as a part of celebration, uh, we have Sanjay Poonan, who's been my inspiration, always been in awe of his energy that he brings to the table. And as an engineer turned sales guy, it's very easy to guess why Sanjay Poonan has been my role model. And uh, he's enough to share a few quotes that that have stayed with me. One is that you don't know a person unless you have the person's cell number, right? The <laughs> has always stayed with me. And then the fr- framework that he shared with me of forming, storming, norming. So um, I'm looking forward to hearing more from Sanjay and, and in terms of alignment towards customer centricity. That's great. Thank you, Shrisha. Uh, Sanjay, tell us a little bit more about yourself and what made you start thinking about customer centricity. Uh, Yeah, thank you, uh, Kristen and Shrisha and the Medali team and um, Strike for doing this. And it's an honor to be with you. Um, You know, uh, I have a very brief story. I'm an immigrant in this country, came 
here in the late 80s uh, from India. Uh, I grew up in, I would say, a middle to lower middle income family in India. Uh, so by all American standards, I was very poor, couldn't afford to be here, except that, uh, you know, a college in the East Coast gave me a scholarship, uh, Dartmouth College, to study computer science. And I really wanted to study computer science because very, this was in the late 80s. I felt like software was going to be a very instrumental part. I was very interested in uh, software and computer science at that stage. It was sort of math and all of those things. So I came here with sort of, you know, an eager eye and a, a curious mind and uh, was very fortunate to, you know, be with great professors who taught me during those four years and then came to the Silicon Valley in the early 90s to work at Apple, um, went back to go to business school. But then since then, I've been practically in the Silicon Valley since, uh, since 91, so almost 30 years now. Um, and I would say through my time, it's always been in B2B software enterprise related, mm -hmm. probably the most formative 15, 16 years have been the last 16 years at two companies, SAP, the world's largest applications company, where I was president, and then more recently, the last eight years as COO of VMware. Um, and I think what, what, what you start to realize um, as you, you know, kind of build out, you know, products or interact with customers, that there are two engines that really matter in a company's success and great companies, you know, build on many more, but these are the two most important. You, you gotta have an incredible innovation at the core of what you're doing. And mm -hmm. in, the, in the Silicon Valley, you know, this is proven to be the recipe of success. You just look at the success of Apple or you look at the success of VMware or Salesforce or Medallia, you gotta have that innovation. But just as important, it's like in a plane with two jets. That jet's important, but just as important is a customer obsession because there are great companies who have incredible innovation who don't focus on the customers. And there are a lot of companies who focus on the customers but don't have innovation to show for it. But when you can put those two together, the plane goes a long way. And um, I, I began to learn that more and more and more and made that a part of my mantra in both the, the way I led my own a motor software of how I led teams, but more importantly, how I led organizations, large organizations to their North Star, whether mm -hmm. I was running an engineering team. About 60 to 70% of my life has been running engineering teams and about 30 to 40% is running go-to-market teams. And this is a good unifying factor for both of them. And, uh, you know, that's kind of the reason I've got. And I think, you know, when you um, open up, go-to-market teams generally tend to be focused on customers, but you'd be surprised often how many sales leaders don't spend enough time with customers. But engineers often, when you can get them to see what the customer really wants uh, and you can get them more customer intimate, I think that that's the big eye opener, I think, to how companies can succeed. And when you can get customers who are interested in co-innovating with you, great things happen. Yeah. Well, so one of my big questions for you was really, you know, we hear the term customer centric all the time and companies say that they're customer centric. And then when you go to do business with them, they're clearly not customer centric and they're not thinking about what makes things easier, better for their clients. So why, I mean, you've kind of talked about this a little bit, but why do you think it's a it's important for companies to be focused on the customers. And what does that look like to you? What does that mean to you? Well, I think, listen, you could build a product and you, I mean, some people might be as incredibly uh, innovative as Steve Jobs and they may not, <laughs> I mean, Steve Jobs did listen to customers. So I yeah. Mean, yeah, let's be clear, even though people didn't, but some people just may have a, an incredible genius of knowing what the customer wants 
but you know, even those us mortals who aren't Steve Jobs, if you're going to innovate, well, how better to do it than with focus groups or with customers who um, you know can give you feedback? And I think you always you know build a better product or a better service. And I think if you look at, you know, I, I'd encourage everyone to read the shareholder letter of Jeff Bezos from, you know, when he started the company in the mid nineties to every one of them, I've read every one of them every year. And he talks about these two philosophies, product innovation, customer obsession. And mm-hmm. there's a reason why he's built one of the greatest companies uh, of all time. And if you talk to his lieutenants, you know, Andy Jassy was a classmate of mine at business school. They all espouse that same mentality, which is product innovation and customer obsession. And um, um, I, there's incredible stories of how in the early days, Jeff Bezos would interrupt a staff meeting uh, because he would have had some flame email from a random retail, retail customer, you know, telling him something and he would stop the meeting. I mean, it just, and when you set that sort of, it's always day one mentality uh, from the top, even when you get to be as big as they are or as big as any of the other companies are, um, you, you build that into the DNA of a company, which I think is super important. Now, how do you make that happen? You just have to, first off, the, the top of the company has to make, has to make that a, uh, a part of their life routine. Mm-hmm. If you have a CEO of the company that doesn't like to meet customers or, or thinks that meeting customers or sits in their office or manages from the office, uh, I mean, I think that those organizations then start to look like their C-level leaders. Mm-hmm. But when you start to exemplify as a leader that the people that are most important are the customer or the engineer or the sales rep that's serving that customer, not even the managers and the VPs and so on and so forth. The person that's most important is the bottom of that pyramid. I call that servant leadership. Um, You start to invert that pyramid and have a very different way in which you're thinking where at the top is not the C-level executive, at the top is the customer or the partner and those people within the organization that are serving them. And that mindset shift uh, has to happen and probably happen with more ferocity the bigger the company is because as the, the company as companies get bigger layers of bureaucracy start to to, to put, kind of insert itself into that pyramid and as leaders we have to constantly take the axe to the root of that bureaucracy and destroy it and yeah. so listen the most important thing is getting this customer happy and sometimes some of the best ways in which you're tested on this is during an escalation when things are not happy mm-hmm. most often people flee for the hills when this is happening, because people don't want to deal with an angry customer. I mean, who wants to? I mean, whether you're in a consumer business where a customer is yelling at you, it's easy to lose your cool, to run for the hills. And engineers often don't want to deal with that. Like, hey, that's the right. problem with the customer. It's a professional service, but it's not our fault. That is the best time to actually engage. Yeah. So you you talk, and our topic today really is around executive alignment. You talk a lot about servant leadership and you making sure that executives are aligned around the customer. Um, what executives are you talking about? Because it seems like when you look at an executive team, there's people on that team who might not need to be engaged with the customer, like HR or maybe finance. Um, who don't do a whole lot with customers, but it sounds like you believe it should be the entire executive team. Yeah, I think different people will have different capacities to be able, and, and mm-hmm. you know, you don't want to force everybody who's uncomfortable, but certainly the CEO, the head of engineering and products and the head of go-to-market. Those, I mean, mm-hmm. typically like a, an organization is someone who leads the company and the two biggest in software companies and tech companies are often the people who are building products and the people who are selling products. Those three people, individuals, men or women, 
should be obsessed about customers. No doubt about it. I mean, yeah. their job should depend on it. Their 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 MBO should depend on it. Their pay should depend on it. And of course, shareholder value is driven by customer centricity. But I think many of the others. Let's take two. Um, okay, you mentioned the head of HR. Listen, what is the head of HR by? Typically, HR systems. So mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, in both the companies I worked with, SAP and VMware. I mean, in SAP, we were selling HR systems. So our head of HR was actually a salesperson to help yeah. us convince other people to buy HR systems. So if you are in a company where your focus is anything HR employed, your head of HR becomes a very important uh, voice to that. Um, and if not, he or she can help you actually potentially position yourself to other HR companies that are selling to him or her. So for example, you know, we use Workday internally at VMware. And we had Betsy Sutter, our head of HR, be the executive sponsor for our relationship with Workday. Uh, Workday sells us stuff. We want to sell them stuff. Who better to talk to Workday than a head of HR because she has a relationship with them. She uses them. And in almost every relationship, there's some kind of balance of trade. You take the CFO. The CFO uses financial systems. We happen to use SAP. Um, So I'd like to have our CFO talk to SAP about what we could do for them. Uh, yeah. Now, I happen to know SAP fairly well because I was an executive <laughs> there. But if I wasn't, he'd be one of the get the good people. So you have to find creative ways by which even the folks who aren't in the natural line of sight, they're often using technology products and vice versa. You can leverage their relationship with that company to uh, help you get a little bit more customer centric. Uh, so those are just ways I, I wouldn't expect them to be doing it as much. As the other three people I mentioned, the CEO, mm-hmm. the head of your go-to-market operations, and um, you know your head of engineering, uh, but you know everyone should pitch in, and yeah. um, you know certainly when you host a customer at your briefing centers, you know we would roll out the red carpet. I mean, and there's a good way to decide how much attention to give a customer. You just look at how much they've spent on you. It's it's a simple <laughs> metric called lifetime revenue. If yeah. they spend a lot of money on you, you probably want to, it's like, you know, the person who, who's flown the most number of miles probably gets the best seat on that plane. Why shouldn't it be the same thing in the way in which you treat the customers? Not to say that someone who hasn't spent as much as you is treated badly, but listen, the person right. who spent the most on you should get a tremendous amount of attention. And um, I think when you live by those principles, even everyone at work, the receptionist at the office becomes somebody who could create a incredible experience when um, that person comes into your briefing, you know, when we get back from COVID, these will all be in person. Um, so I think there's multiple ways in which you can get the entire organization focused on the customer. Yeah. How do you make sure that all of those executives are in alignment with each other? What's the best way to go about doing that? We have in both the companies that I've most recently involved as 15, 16 years, we would have met, uh, business objectives, MBOs that were driven on simple metrics like NPS. Now there's a lot of research that is con- that sort of plays out, you know, is NPS the right metric? I almost don't care what it is, but pick a yeah. metric. I happen to like NPS. Some metric. It's simple and it's, <laughs> it stood the test of time for 20, yeah. 30 years. And it was something we were talking about when I was at Harvard Business School. So, you know, I don't, if it's something else, do something else, but have a metric that's measurable where you don't measure something, you can't manage it. That's a very famous quote from Peter Drucker. Mm -hmm. So pick a metric. I happen to like NPS and make that a metric that the entire management team is focused on. You measure it, it's objective, and then don't try to game it. A lot of people like, uh, you know, measure NPS by, by uh, looking at the satisfaction of their best satisfied customers. That's a fake metric. Be honest with yourself. Have a third party potentially mention that so that you're objective. It's, you know, why game it? Because ultimately, if you're gaming it to get compensated, it's going to show up 
somewhere else where people aren't unhappy. I mean, it's going to yeah. show up in, in your win-loss ratios on sales deals. It's going to have people defect and ultimately it's going to affect your share price. Yeah. So um, uh, that's one way. And then I, we, we have sought to tie then those MBOs to compensation. And okay. often it's, you know, it's in places that you don't expect. I, I would often, I ran engineering teams, have engineers not dock their, their base salary. I mean, certainly nobody should, should have to suffer in their base salary, but their bonuses depended on NBS. And I said, why should the sales rep have to suffer from not making a deal and miss their commission? And you get to have a fat bonus if your product's not working well. So right. if you've got quality issues in your product, in our product, I was leading that engineering team, yeah. and, um, and customers are dissatisfied, I'm going to dock your bonus. I mean, no, no questions asked about it. And it's amazing when I said that publicly on an all-hands call, how many of the sales reps loved it? They're like, wow, the engineers are with us in the battle. Uh, I'm going to measure how responsive you are to customer escalations. And if I see a recurring pattern, I'm going to dock your bonus. And it wasn't like I was trying to use a stick all the time. But you have to use a combination of carrots and sticks to motivate the combination of engineering go-to-market teams to drive to that goal of customer centricity. I love that. I, I, compensation is a powerful driver. And I think a lot of companies don't take full advantage of that. And so it's really encouraging to hear you say that because it can, in sales and in customer success, feel like you're kind of going solo if the engineering and product teams don't also have an incentive toward happy customers. And so I think that's a great way to look at it. Um, tell me, what do you do if one of your executives isn't aligned? Like, how do you kind of bring them back into the fold? Uh, you know, I, I think, listen, the best way to um, ensure alignment is, you know, certainly if the person reports to you, is have a conversation with them. I mean, yeah. listen, you know, I think we're misaligned here. What's going on? You know, don't do this over email. You know, of course, if you can't meet, do it over Zoom. Uh, and, and talk to the person because often misalignment is not malicious. It could be because they didn't understand the objective or they've got other things going on in their life. Um, so you want to be empathetic. I mean, listen, as much as I talked a little bit of a mm -hmm. tough talk the last few minutes about having yeah. docking people's bonuses, people who know me pretty well, I, that's, not the, that's, not, that's not the spirit I think they would sense of me. I tend to be an empathetic person and really want to, you know, in the words of Stephen Covey, seek to understand uh, before being understood. Okay? Yeah. In other words, you know, understand where people are coming from. So often those misalignments happen because there's some misperception of so and so forth. You want to understand that. But once you've done that, uh, a leader, whether it's that person reports to you, uh, or if they're, I mean, often the best way to kind of do it, if it's a peer is, I mean, the peer relationships are often the ones that are the best ones to get. Once you get aligned, you don't even need the boss to come in place. Yeah. And ultimately there is a boss. There's a CEO of a company, that person, she or he needs to get the team aligned and that's their responsibility. That's why they are given the C-level title. And, um, you know, you shouldn't have to take things to your board. It's a dysfunctional management team if the CEO can't get their teams uh, aligned. Uh, and then listen, if you find as a CEO, if, you're, uh, if their CEO is listening to this broadcast and you're not fine, there's a variety of, of teamwork exercises that you could do that get your team more and more aligned. You know, we've done a number of them. Um, and even the biggest companies, you know, who had great CEOs like Jack Welch had to constantly think about how they were building it. And sometimes as a result of that, some people may need to leave and some people may need to join. Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, you know, there's never one, but this is the 
art and science of management. I mean, to me, it's one of the wonderful aspects of interpersonal relationships that create, brings the best creativity out of managers. Um, you know, when you become a manager, whether you're a first line manager or a CEO, it stops becoming about you. It's yeah. no longer about you. It's about the team that you feel. Uh, it's about how you get them like a team. You become like a coach. You're no longer a Michael Jordan. You're like a Phil Jackson. You still have to contribute. You can't be just sitting on the bench. I mean, that's why the analogy breaks down a little bit. But you have to think about the team that you feel and how do you get them aligned. Um, so those are a few thoughts, uh, Christian, that I would have for you. Yeah, and I have another question, and it kind of goes hand in hand with that question. So that was around the executives. But what what do you do if you run into silos or internal politics below the executive team? How do you break those down so that your organization can become more customer centric? Yeah, there are books written about this. And I think the bigger the organization gets, typically castles tend to form. You have to, as I described, you have to break uh, you have to you know, uh, take the ax to the root of all of that bureaucracy. Listen, politics and silo thinking and castle mentality, all of these things, that's very natural behavior because of politics and yeah. the way in which people seek to gain power. And that's, that's okay. But I think you have to, I mean, knowing that it exists in a company, it's normal. But you have to reward behavior that you know establishes pure relationships between teams and seeks the greater good of a team rather than just an individual characteristic. And you know, often role models means you have to look at yourself to ask yourself, how do I get more ego out of myself and help not just the people on my team, okay, mm -hmm. but help my peers. I think the greatest uh, growth of a person happens when they begin to realize, uh, not just that it's no longer about them and it's about their team, yeah. It's their ability to strengthen their peers who are often competing with them, might be stomping over them. Uh, and at the end of the day, they appear to be the leader without it even being the case where they are demanding that, that title. And their peers just respect them because of their servant leadership, because of their willingness to really think team first, the greater goal. And then, you know, over time, they just emerge because of Leadership is one of those things where skills just start to show up. This person's a persuasive, um, you know, uh, enthusiastic, you know, inspiring per that I, person that I want to follow. Uh, and I think ultimate leadership is determined by followership. But often one of the greatest stumbling blocks to that followership is the individualism that can take over of a person that basically then thinks of themselves ahead of their peers or their teams in the quest of a per particular goal. And I think as a leader, you've got to first examine yourself to ask yourself, how do you constantly, you know, ambition is not a bad thing, uh, but ruthless ambition to the point where you are stomping over others, uh, especially your peers. Ultimately, some cultures will reward that. Uh, and there are companies that are kind of built in that top down mold. But I think ultimately people, are re people realize that that person and often when that person leaves that company or if their executive sponsor who is sponsored that type of behavior leaves, they're orphaned. And they end up not being successful. So I think the greater leader at these level, I mean, you know, Jim Collins calls it a level five leader who ultimately is constantly thinking like a Nelson Mandela or a Mahatma Gandhi or a Mother Teresa. I mean, people like them were thinking about the greater cause of humanity as opposed to how many people reported to their organization. Yeah. Nelson Mandela was in jail for 27 years. He had zero people reporting to him, but he led a movement out of jail. 
And to me, these are the type of people that I admire because they were able to leave movements without uh, a huge organization. And people just were inspired by them. They were just inspired by them and wanted to follow them. And that's the type of leader I aspire to be. And I would encourage any of your listeners on this. That's the type of leadership you want to be first. And that's the type of leadership you want to build into your company. Yeah. And I, I, I think I would encourage people to think about if what if what really makes you happy is working directly with customers and um, you get excited about being an individual contributor and shining as an individual, then a leadership track is probably not right for you. And that's okay. You don't have to be a leader to progress in your career. There are lots of opportunities for people who are individual contributors and you don't have to go down the leadership path. But if you really like the idea of mobilizing other people, um, that's when leadership might be a good option for you. And I absolutely agree with what you just said around what it takes to be a good leader. It takes that focus on a mission that's bigger than just how many people do you have on your team? (laughs) If I could add one thing, because there's a misconception that leaders have to be managers. You just described the leader who has zero people reporting to them, but could be a leader in the sense that they, all it takes as a leader is you have followers. That's it. Now, some leaders are also big managers and some managers become C-level executive. That's okay. But you can be a leader in your own regard and tell somebody, I don't want to ever manage people. I'm not good at managing people, but I want to inspire this. And I actually like those type of people even more than people who are ambitious to have a large organization because often those people have insights without an agenda. They yeah. are really trying to help the greater good of humanity or the greater good of the company or the greater good of a customer. Um, and I want to listen to them often, even more so than the sort of the you know, naked ambition person who doesn't really have a lot of insights that, you know, but are just, you know, blatantly ambitious. Yeah. Or, you know, I mean, there's a lot of room for day-to-day leaders who are, who are just really good organized managers. Um, they don't have to be the like shining star thought leaders. Um, but I, I do think there's places for all of those people. It's just, you have to kind of look at yourself as a professional and say, okay, this is where I want to go. And this is what's right for me and find your spot so that you're not just assuming the only way to move forward is to move into management because that's how we end up with bad managers, I believe, <laughs> is people who think that that's the only path. And uh, there's a lot of that. I think there's a lot of that in every field, but there's a lot of that in customer success for sure right now. So um, next question for you is, you know, you've mentioned in a couple of the articles that I've read um, that you believe there's a nice tie between a company culture and a customer centric culture. How do those relate to each other? Yeah, I mean, it sort of came out of, of seminal research that a professor of mine at Harvard Business School wrote years ago, which I think is still true. I think the research was done 20, 25 years ago. It was called the service profit chain. And I encourage you, if you're all students of management or uh, management science, read the book or read the article that was in Harvard Business Review many years. And it basically studied companies that had created uh, sustained shareholder value over multiple decades. Mm-hmm. Um, and these were either companies that you might recognize the brands of, some of you didn't. And behind them were obviously satisfied customers. That's clear. You know, a company does not create sustained shareholder value without satisfied customers. But behind satisfied customers were highly engaged employees. And the root of a incredible shareholder value was not just satisfied customers, but highly engaged employees. And the theory went 
that highly engaged employees in turn served customers really well, who in turn bought a lot of product or your service and then drove uh, you know, shareholder value. And you had to look at the root of that um, you know, kind of success was employee engagement. So it really inspired me to basically say, listen, if we want to create shareholder value, which is what we're trying to do, if you're a public company, it's your share price. If it's a private company, it's how you're able to grow things um, you know, until you get there. Um, you have to focus on your employees. And happy employees and engaged employees drive customer relationships or, you know, uh, and, and no better time to have proved this than COVID. I mean, the moment COVID happened, we told our employees last year, this time, a little earlier, around February, March of last year, listen, what's more important is your health and your safety than the profits of, of uh, VMware. Uh, in other words, the profits of VMware could wait. The more important thing is your health and safety. Take care of yourself and your families, especially those of you who have uh, older ones or any of you who are personally at risk. And then if you are healthy, start turning your attention because uh, it's not going to be a six month or a 12 month or six year vacation. Let's turn our attention to our customers. And it was amazing without the intent to kind of, you know, get money out of them or gouge them, but to help them. And we had a number of folks who were on the front lines of hospitals, retailers, pharmacies, schools, governments who needed our software that we just said, hey, we're here to help. Um, and I sent out hundreds of notes. I'm, I'm here to help. How can I help you? I began meeting, I mean, I set a goal to meet the thousand chief security officers because we began to see the threat vector also increasing with ransomware and so on and so forth. Yeah. And with Zoom, we could do so many of these. So I think when you get engaged employees, and certainly if you have people at the top of the company who are exemplifying, hey, we are here for you, um, you, you almost, if you're a leader, you almost start to think of your employees like your children, and you want to make sure that they're safe, they're secure, they're engaged. And when they're engaged at the point of, of uh, satisfying a customer, great things happen. Yeah. So last question, and then we're gonna open it up for some audience questions. Um, let's say you were a vice president of customer success. That's our audience. Um, and you wanted to drive your organization toward becoming more customer centric. What are some of the things that you would do to tackle that challenge? Yeah, I think first off, I mean, here's just a few prescriptive things. Get a list of your top, I don't know, 10% of your customers. If you have a thousand yeah. customers, that's a hundred. If it's 10,000, it's a thousand, you know, it's not, you know, not, and, and usually those top 10, 20% are driving a significant part of your revenue. So take your top 10% that are driving the bulk of your lifetime revenue value and get to know them. Okay. Mm -hmm. Get to know them really well. I mean, uh, I mean, you know, in our segment at VMware, there was a couple of sectors, public sector, banking, telco, healthcare. And I made it a mission. I mean, and certainly this is something I inherited from my SAP days to get to know our top customers by name. You know, uh, Shrisha was nice to talk about. You really know them if you really know their mobile number. These were just things we would do. I mean, in fact, yeah. I got that from a friend of mine at SAP who would, you know, when I was an engineer for most of my life and I first took my first sales job, uh, and I learned a lot from uh, Bill McDermott, who's now CEO of ServiceNow, uh, and that team, we would joke about that. Uh, they would, we would sit in meetings and it's like, hey, I know that customer. Oh, I know that customer. And they're like, well, do you really know that customer? When's their birthday? What's their mobile phone number? Yeah. <laughs> and we would just basically have that type of banter. So I would encourage you, first off, make a list of your top and get to know them really well and understand why they like you, what they want from you. You know, typically in these sort of check, I just got off of one coming into this, uh, you know, meeting, you know, and then now I'm actually helping the handoff because, you know, I'm, I'm leaving VMware and I'm, I'm thinking about the next thing that I'm going to be announcing in the next three to six months. 
but I want to hand off many of these customers to my successor in a good, thorough, thoughtful, thorough way, uh, even while I'm still at VMware, you know, for the next several weeks, so that it's done in a proper way, because it's in my interest to make sure that they're happy. So a few of these I've kind of done now individually in a thoughtful and thorough way, but that's how you want to be thinking, whether it's the birth of a relationship or the passing of the baton. Uh, and then typically, as you build those relationships, they will tell you things. They want to, you to be a trusted advisor to them. That's It's like you're, you're a doctor, right? Mm -hmm. And what does a patient want from a doctor? Hey, just tell me when something I should know about my health metrics. I don't know how to read any of these key metrics, whether it's my, you know, uh, these levels here, there, and the other place from my, my physical uh, and warn me so that I can live a long life. I mean, that's exactly what a customer wants from you. They want you to know, like, can you tell me when I'm not doing well and compare me to other patients you also serve that are doing things better than me so I can live like them? That's, I mean, that's what people want. And the best relationship is when your customer looks to you like a tr as a trusted advisor. And when that happens, it's magical because yeah. they're calling you then. And then count the number of times you get an inbound from a customer to you versus you calling a customer. Typically, yeah. most organizations are calling customers. I mean, most often when they need an order, hey, I need a sales order. That's okay. That's all fine. And I'm not saying that you should not have a lot of proactive outreach, but the best relationships are ones where the number of times a customer calls you is even higher than the number of times you call them. Uh, and yeah. you know, you are, it's like really like a patient doctor relationship. The doctor doesn't call you as often as you call the doctor often. So yeah. you want that dynamic to be one where you're thinking, and listen, often a doctor isn't working on their own. They have a whole village of people who come inside them. It's the nurse, it's a specialist. So it's not going to be just you, but you bring right. the team to bear with the good uh, and the outlook of that patient in mind. So I, I think there's a lot of lessons we could learn from the healthcare industry, hospitals, doctors, uh, that, that sort of apply to the way in which you think about customer success. I love that idea. I think that's great. Um, and that goes kind of along with the health scores and the risk scores we exactly. all look at too. Um, so we're going to open it up for some questions from the audience. So audience, if you are live right now with us, if you have a um, question, please put it in the Q&A section. And um, I'm going to start with a couple that have come in while we've been talking. Um, one of the questions that came from the audience is how do you gauge customer centricity in an organization, whether it's your own or a partner's or a vendor's? What do organizations that hyper-focus on customers do that really stands out? I mean, listen, you can, uh, they, they, they just start to earn a reputation, you know, as customers, as they talk to customers and others, you don't, some of them, of course, you're going to measure, but you take Nordstrom. Nordstrom is a classic yeah. example of somebody everyone talks of as having incredible customer success. I mean, you just, you know, you go to the Nordstrom rep, they, they really want you to look the best in their clothes. So they're going to call you when something, you know, fits you perfectly or is mm -hmm. on sale. They really become like your personal agent, right? Uh, and I think those relationships where that person's really looking out for you, calls you when they don't need you, is patient, doesn't get easily hurt. Uh, I mean, and they build that into the fabric of almost every single one. And where things do go wrong, they have a learning moment, a teachable moment. Uh, I mean, I'm, you know, Starbucks has gone through that teachable moment. I mean, when they had this, you know, kind of incident of racial discrimination in a in a one of the Starbucks. I mean, I don't, whether the, who was at fault or not, the CEO basically said, "Listen, it's on me. I got to train these everyone from the 
the, yeah. the top suite to the barista to be, you know, better understanding how to deal with this thing. We're going to shut down uh, all Starbucks locations on this particular day and have a training day um, mm -hmm. and, and help everyone understand how we're not going to let this happen again. When you get to be a large organization, especially with, you know, retail businesses. And so there's a lot I learned from consumer businesses that have enormous amount of scale, Starbucks, McDonald's, uh, you know, uh, Nordstrom's, uh, you know, Apple stores, you can take, and when you go to one of these retail outlets, you can quickly assess within five minutes, the ones that have good customer success, customer service, and ones who don't. And yeah. when you build that mindset into the far reaches of your organization, you reward those behaviors, you correct the ones that are not going well. In some cases, you let go of people who don't have that customer centricity mindset, and it's exemplified at the top of the company. I mean, it's so important. Then uh, I think the only thing you have to watch is as your company gets bigger, that you're building into your hiring practices, places where you don't start to lose. I mean, often when I see a company that's small, as they get bigger from 100 people to 1,000 people to 10,000 people, they start to lose some of that customer centricity. It's because they've started to hire people and their standards of how they think about customer serving customers goes down. Yeah. I'm going to ask a very selfish question because I'm the host and I get to do that every once in a while. Um, this is a question that that just came up for me because you've mentioned a lot of companies and you've actually mentioned a number of books as we've been going through this interview. What are some of your favorite books about being customer centric? I, I haven't looked at books from the lens of just being customer centric. I'm yeah. a, I'm a, I am a big avid, um, you know, uh, reader of books of how people make impact in people's lives. That's, okay. that's, I mean, it starts there, right? I mean, customer centricity is just a way by which you impact people's lives. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, Jim Collins' book, Built to Last, you know, um, okay. uh, all of his books are classics. Uh, Stephen mm -hmm. Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. These are classics. I mean, everyone should have read these books uh, because they just teach you. It's sort of like teaching you manners. Uh, and then I'm just inspired often by people's stories. I mean, you know, most recently I posted on Twitter and if you follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn, which I encourage you to do, I post this morning, I'm reading the audio, I'm listening to the audiobook of a, a gentleman named Dr. Paul Brand, who was a uh, missionary in India who, and who helped leprosy patients because you've noticed leprosy is an almost eradicated disease now, but mm -hmm. in many years in India, there were a lot of leprosy, um, you know, folks were suffering from it and it affects your nerves. And in fact, ultimately your hands and your feet start to, to, to fall off, but he was able to invent some incredible reconstructive surgery that allowed these folks to actually use their, and it's amazing at the time, this was probably done in the 1940s and 1950s. Yeah. Uh, and it's an inspiring story. So I am often inspired by people like this who, you know, and they're doing it often with a not trying to be a Nobel Peace Prize winner. They're just trying to do it to help somebody else. And those are the types of stories that inspire me the most because I want to live like these people. Um, and when you live with that sort of unselfish mindset of saying, listen, I want to have an impact, not just make an impression. I want to have an impact on people's lives. I think you're an incredible person. Yeah, I love that. Um... I'm going to go back to the, the more practical <laughs> questions that are coming in. Uh, what can customer facing teams do to facilitate executives accurate understanding of customer needs, either expressed or anticipated without creating a lot of noise? Um, what organizational processes have you seen work really well? 
Yeah, I think these you've mentioned several of them, uh, Kristen, health scores. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, listen, many of the customer success books, including the ones that you guys have written, I mean, the founders of Medallia are fantastic people. I've known them for many years and really admire the work you guys are doing. Uh, you know, Nick Mehta, Gainsight's written a couple of books on customer success. I respect the work that Gainsight's doing. So there's a number of folks who've been in this move- movement, uh, including your founders, and I'm sure Shrisha is the same way. So many of you are thought leaders. And the research you guys do, at least if I don't get to read the whole book, I will watch the 30-minute uh, uh, you know, TED Talk video that gives me a summary of the book. Uh, and there's things those kinds. And many of them have then prescribed uh, you know, uh, dashboards and index, index manners and best practices uh, that I think, listen, I, I, I tremendously learn from. And you know, um, I would encourage any of your listeners to get close to some of these software companies that are trying to do this at scale um, and take the best practice. If you're dealing with a medallia, you should be asking medallia, hey, how have you solved this well for other customers in my vertical? And what can mm-hmm. you teach me uh, uh, from that best practice that I can learn from? And I think that those, you know, whether it's a set of metrics or a set of qualitative, um, you know, kind of processes that you established, um, none of these things are ones that are so rocket science that they can't be replicated. And there isn't a patent on a great idea for customer success. If it's a great idea, steal it, use it, make it your own. And then give credit to where you learned from. If I learned something from Nordstrom, hey, I learned this from the Nordstrom rep. If I learned this from Apple, I'm gonna give credit there, but I wanna then take that great idea and apply it to what I do in my own business. So those are a few ideas, Kristen, that I would offer. Okay, that's great. Um, I have another question um, that, that is, I love putting customer centricity at the center of businesses but I see many more companies that don't focus on customer centricity than those who do. Why do you think so many companies don't focus on that? And what are the barriers or mindsets that are getting in the way of doing that so that we can think about how we change those? Yeah, I think you got to come back to that picture I gave you of a plane with two engines, right? Yeah. It could be that a company is not as customer obsessive and is being successful because they've got incredible product innovation. And some companies who just have incredible product innovation, I mean, and they're talking to a few customers, but are not, they could say, hey, fire the dissatisfied customers. I could care less about them. They're never going to get my product. I mean, there is a theory that if your customer who's really dissatisfied is not going to help you, maybe walk away from that. And there is a sort of, you know, I can't make everybody happy. I've got to focus on these customers and maybe this top five, 10%, they're never going to be happy. Let somebody else serve them. And, and there is a, a, a theory, there's absolutely merit to that logic. Um, but I think that companies who are systematically bad customer obsession ultimately catches up with you. I mean, and some point your product innovation starts to fade a little bit and then you got to lean on the other engine. And I think, listen, if you're a great company, why not build both engines to be great? Why, it, doesn't, it doesn't hurt you to have you know, a, an obsession with innovation on the product side and an obsession with customer focus. You know? And I think great companies who do both, they go longer. So if you start to sense that your company is starting to lose some of that customer obsession, I would say, look at yourself first in the mirror if you're a leader and ask yourself, what can you do better? How can you be spending more time with customers to role model that this is important? Uh, and then of course, there might be root causes. Hey, listen, part of the reason we're just having an incredible customer obsession is we've got a quality issue with our product. Okay, even the great Apple. I mean, you know, Steve Jobs wasn't willing to admit it, but he had problems with antennas and he had problems here, there, and the other place. And, you know, some of their mapping software at some point in time wasn't great. 
they had to fix it. And often it led to some changes internally in the company. So if, if there are self-reflective moments where part of the reason you're not doing well is you've got a product quality issue or you've got systematic, maybe you have to make changes because uh, it can't be just the go-to-market team, the people who are servicing the customer or often the ones who are paying the front line of the problem. Maybe some of those step, stem all the way back into engineering issues. So I think of a, a, you know, a person who's constantly thinking sort of in that fishbone diagram, what is the root cause? What's the root cause? What's the root cause? Mm -hmm. And they're always asking that question, seeking the why, the why, the why, and they finally get, okay, the root cause is this, and we're gonna now go and fix that issue to ultimately help the customer. Um, they are relentlessly in that curiosity mindset to get to the root cause of an answer. And then, you know, are often reflective of a pain point themselves. I mean, you know, often, they, I love the saying, fail, you look at failure in a mirror uh, and you look at success through a, through a window. In other words, when success happens, you celebrate the team that's happened as opposed to yourself. And when failure happens, you take it on your own shoulders. And great leaders are not looking to deflect blame. They're trying to take it on themselves. The buck stops with them. And often when, and, when, and whenever they're successful, they pass on the credit to others. Um, and, you know, and that's the opposite of the mentality of most people, which is you know, success has many fathers and failure is an orphan. And I think that when you build that mindset into a company where, listen, there's a problem, I'm going to get in the trenches with you. I'm not just going to deflect this to you. You go do all the dirty work and I'll take the credit. You need to be on a call with the customer. I'll be there with you. I don't know how to write the code, but what do you need? You need to buy pizza for you to stay late night. I'll be there with you. <laughs> That's the mindset of a great leader. They're constantly looking to encourage, uh, build a team up. And at some point in time, you can't be in every single customer escalation if you're a C-level executive, right. but you then built that culture into your organization that other leaders then start to act the same way. And then when you've left, when you've retired or you're no longer at the company, your legacy is that customer obsession that you've left within the company. And that's certainly been my, you know, for the eight years I was at SAP and the eight years I was at VMware, the thing I'm most proud about was I left a legacy with those companies where customer obsession was a key priority to the teams I left behind, or uh, hopefully even the perception of my impact at those two companies for the years I was there. That's great. Sanjay, I think Shrisha has a question. Yeah. Yeah. So, Sanjay, um, I've met, I meet a lot of entrepreneurs and startups, and I find that all of them are obsessed about the product and they feel like the more complex they make it, the more value it generates. And that's where your money of keeping it simple really resonated with me. Would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's a phrase I've used. It's a catchy, good phrase, and it helps. Uh, I often tell people, if you have to describe your product with hundreds of PowerPoint, you probably have no power <laughs> and no point. Uh, so I think the, 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 the challenge often, whether it's lots of features or lots of PowerPoints, is we tend to complexify things. And Da Vinci said, you know, simplicity is the greatest sophistication. And as leaders, we have to constantly say, okay, let's make it simpler. Let's make it simpler. And if, you, if you've got something that's too simple, you know, people are going to think of you as an empty suit. So it's always sort of like an accordion. You're complexifying things and then you're simplifying things. You're complexifying things and you're simplifying things. And if you are, you know, in the, the mindset where you thrive in density of features and so on, so that's great. Celebrate that because that's probably going to make your, I mean, why does Amazon win? Because they're like the Amazon river. They've got everything possible on their website that you can buy. Okay. Uh, <laughs> they've got everything possible in their Amazon web services as a set of services. They built to breadth. But even if you talk to a Jeff Bezos or an Andy Jassy, 
they will come back to first principles of what's made them successful. Yes, they have breadth, but they want to make sure it's easily searchable, that there's two or three big ideas that are driving the future of all of those things. So I think, you know, as a great leader, you have to constantly ask yourself, your strength will be your breadth and your depth. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, but you always have to ask yourself, I cannot inspire people by just saying, right, let me speak, spend hours and hours with you explaining my breadth and depth. You inspire people with the five minutes you spend with them that leaves them thinking, oh my gosh, I want to follow this person. I mean, we've had a one hour, Q a one hour um, uh, you know, Zoom discussion here with, I mean, what is it, 60, 70 people attending and maybe hundreds of thousands of people who listen to recording of this podcast. But maybe there's two or three minutes, maybe it's just this small few minutes that we're talking about Sesame Street Simple that will resonate with one person. That's it. Good. Let them take it. So I began to think that way of asking myself, what are those you know, one, three, five, 10 principles of customer centricity. And that's why, you know, I wrote that blog and ultimately spoke about it at a conference. And that's, I think, how you got interested in having me come and talk at this podcast. Uh, and, you know, out of those 10, maybe one or two would resonate with people. Uh, I'll give you another example where we felt like our product engineers were constantly making things so complex. We needed to simplify things. We ran through what's called design thinking with the Stanford Design School. We found it to be extremely helpful. I have a good friend who's a professor there, a senior professor there. We brought him in to do a, a lecture, a whole day of exercise. What I found with product people and you know, salespeople too, was they all love to go to school again and study something or be inspired. So we brought this Stanford professor in. He, he spent time teaching our team and where people wanted to spend more time, we even sent them at our expense to the Stanford Design School uh, to take classes on design thinking. And I'm a big, big believer in design thinking which is it really teaches you how to simplify things and make yeah. things feasible, make things viable. Uh, they teach you many of these constructs and then they get, send you through exercises of how do you take a, you know, I don't have a wallet in front of me, but how do you take a, a man's wallet or a woman's purse and make it simple so that it really appeals to them, okay? Yeah. Uh, as opposed to most wallets that are just got lots of pockets and are extremely thick. Uh, at least I'm talking about a, a man's wallet, a men's wallet. So. Uh, there are simple exercises they do of this kind that really, really help product and designers uh, simplify, 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 simplify. Now, listen, if you oversimplify, you end up with something that, you know, ultimately has very little depth. So you want to always be thinking, come back to that according pitch, but your strength, if you are a product or uh, oriented C-level person or an engineer who loves the breadth, is that depth and breadth. Don't ever, ever lose that focus or that, that joy that you get from building something to be broad. Uh, but as you progressively simplify things, it becomes like layers of an onion. You don't have to present all of that depth to a customer in their first interaction with you. There's a reason why the Google page, the home page of search is simple. It's just a bar which says search. Do you think Google doesn't have a lot of features? It has tons of features, but they don't need you to see all of those features in the home screen. And I think that's the way in which great product designers need to keep thinking. Yeah, I love that. Trisha, did you have a follow-up question? Yeah, so Sanjay, um, you know, for all those folks who know you, they know that you believe in uh, memorable phrases, quotes, and all of that. One thing um, that, again, one additional thing that I remember two years, one mouth, um, again, in terms of driving customer security, I think, that was uh, a memorable one. Would love you to share that. 
Well, uh, we could have a whole session of Sanjay Pune's memorable <laughs> quotes, and I can assure you that all of them aren't ones that I came up with. They were often ones I've heard from others or you know, attribute to them. But I'll give you the place where that started. Again, I'll tell you everything I've learned about selling. Um, I learned from Bill McDermott, who was my boss at, at, at SAP and now CEO of ServiceNow. He's an incredible man. Um, but he would tell us often when we go to meetings, okay, um, okay, we'd be sitting in the lobby, wait, and this is pre-COVID when you know, we were doing a lot of customer business, and that'll also return. At some point, we're all going to be meeting customers face-to-face. Uh, hey, folks, we're going to this meeting. I want rabbit ears, not alligator mouths. Okay, think again. <laughs> I want rabbit ears. I don't want long alligator mouths. And it was a way to kind of enforce to all of us before we walked into the meeting, just shut up and listen. Okay. Mm-hmm. And often I would find, I'd be sitting in meetings and listen, all of us who are loquacious, I'm one of them. We have a lot to say and, you know, but there's a time to shut up and ask the right questions. You learn a lot more by asking someone questions than assuming. Uh, I think there's a reason why, and you ask open-ended questions. I mean, a closed-ended question is something like this, which is, uh, hey, isn't the sky blue? Um, yeah, that, it's a yes or no answer. What do you expect me to say in return? But um, asking a question like, why is the sky blue? Wow, now you get to open up um, and really discover science. So I think that the great leaders are constantly inquisitive. They're asking open-ended questions. uh, And you see that, I mean, listen, Satya Nadella is a good friend. He's been a friend and mentor of mine for many years. I also remember like well before he became CEO, he was uh, the executive sponsor for the relationship of Microsoft to SAP. And I was the executive sponsor of the relationship of SAP to Microsoft. So we'd meet a lot. And I remember my first meeting with him. When I first met this guy. He came to my office and he asked me these open-ended questions about SAP. I was like, why does he care about that? But I found in his mindset, he was about what he now talks about, growth mindset. He was constantly trying to learn. And now, of course, I see him in action at Microsoft and he's a bigger version of that same person. But he never lost that inquisitiveness that made him want to understand SAP in my own words. And listen, you know, if I'm meeting a Medallia or meeting some other company, I wanna ask the people, tell us what makes you so special? Why are you different from your competitors? What are your customers telling you? Because if I can get some insights, you guys are in the middle of serving your customers and building your products about your space, I'm the smarter for it, right? As opposed to you having to learn everything from me. Now, listen, there are times like this one where you ask me to come as a thought leader to your session and teach you a little bit about these, that's all fine. But uh, I think in general, my mindset's always been, listen, you know, uh, find ways by which you can be intellectually in- inquisitive. Yeah, I, I think curiosity is one of the most important characteristics of CSMs who are really good. Um, you have to be curious and you have to learn about your customer's business and what they're doing outside of just the thing you're trying to kind of work with them on. And that's how you get creative and that's how you understand them better. So I I love that. Um, I'm going to wrap it up because we're coming to the end of our time. And I know probably most of you who are listening have other meetings to jump to. It's COVID time where we just go from Zoom to Zoom. So Sanjay and Shrisha, thank you so much for being a part of our 100th episode today. Uh, Our audience loves practical advice, and I've seen a lot of things on chat while we've been talking. Um, Absolutely, everyone appreciates the um, advice that you've given them and the ideas and examples that you've shared on today's show. So thank you. Um, I want to let people know we had a contest going for who could submit 
um, really good questions for this. So I wanna announce the winners. So Jota Das, Reginald Chapman, Satora Severova and Brianna Thurston are the winners. So you'll all be receiving a $20 Amazon gift card. So congratulations if you're a winner. Um, and I also wanna thank our sponsors, Medallia and the Success League. Uh, to learn more about Medallia's customer success solution, you can visit strikedeck.com and follow StrikeDeck on LinkedIn or at StrikeDeck on Twitter. Uh, to find out more about the Success League, please visit our website, thesuccessleague.io and follow the Success League on LinkedIn or at TSL customers on Twitter. And to get all of the latest episodes of our podcast, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And finally, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening to 100 episodes. And we hope you'll join us next time.